and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Rosemary Giles, and today we are here with Caitlin Carter. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. We're so excited that you're here to chat with us a little bit about your research and your experience in grad school today. Um, so why don't we get started? Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the research that you're doing here at Western? Uh, okay, yeah, so I'm just finishing up my master's degree in history, um, and my research focuses on the 1972 Summit Series, which was an eight-game hockey tournament played between Canada and Russia um, during kind of the height of the Cold War. Uh, and basically what my research focuses on is Canadian nationalism and the ways that we use hockey to actually express that nationalism and understand how we relate to our country, specifically as a very masculine country as well. Very cool. So I think you're a very lucky student here. You get to write about hockey, <laughs> read and uh, uh, research on hockey. Um, so why the Summit Series? Is, was the Summit Series kind of a big monumental moment for hockey? Why is this what you're focusing on? <laughs> uh, well, I kind of went into this as someone who just enjoys hockey. And I think I didn't realize that hockey could actually be a serious academic topic until really this year. Um, and so finding that I could do that was very fun. Uh, and then I realized, oh, well, I can't talk about, you know, modern hockey teams that I'm interested in. I have to kind of bring it back a little bit further because that's what they want for a history degree, surprisingly. Um, and uh, I was talking to my supervisor and she suggested that I look at maybe uh, in 1980 with the, the miracle on ice, they call it between the USSR and America. Um, but I wasn't really as interested in American expressions of nationalism, but I did think that comparing Soviet to uh, Canadian would be really interesting. And I knew of the Summit series, not a lot of the Summit series, I hadn't watched it or anything, um, but I had heard of it from my dad, who was a pretty big fan of it. Uh, fan of it. He was 12 when the series happened, so uh, it was pretty monumental to him. Uh, and I thought that it might be kind of interesting to actually get a deeper dive into it and see how it relates to uh, Canada as a whole, especially as something I could talk to my dad about too. <laughs> he was home a lot, so it was helpful. <laughs> Absolutely. So you mentioned that kind of your research is focusing on um, nationalism and nationalism during the summit series. So why don't we just take a step back? Do you mind explaining uh, a little bit in detail about what exactly the summit series was, um, how it happened that Canada and the USSR were playing hockey against each other, and I guess why it was such a big deal? Oh, geez. So that's going to require quite a bit of hockey history there. Um, <laughs> so one important thing to know was that at this point in time, Canada had withdrawn from the International Ice Hockey Federation. Uh, and a big reason for that was because at this point in time, international sport competition was supposed to be uh, an amateur competition. Uh, and because Canada and uh, North America, actually more generally, has these professional leagues, we have the NHL. And at this point, uh, we also had the um, WHA or the World Hockey Association, which is a, a defunct hockey league, uh, a lot of these players were being paid to play hockey. Uh, so all of kind of the best Canadian players couldn't qualify for international competition. Uh, so Canada had withdrawn from the competition because they wanted to kind of protest that they couldn't put their best players on ice. Um, and while they weren't playing, Russia was just cleaning up. Like Russia was taking home all of the medals, they were winning all the tournaments and Canadian, Canadians kept saying, well, that's only happening because Canada isn't there, um, which was that true? Not really, actually, it turns out. Um, and so in 1969, um, kind of as a show of uh, good faith as well in the Soviet Union, which was branching out to have more relations with North America, uh, Canada proposes this hockey tournament to finally determine who's actually the better nation at hockey. 
Uh, and so it meant, meant a lot because Canada had kind of held on to this notion for a very long time that they were obviously dominant in hockey and kind of by extension, obviously dominant in just being that their society was better than the Russians. And one of the ways that they could prove that was through hockey. Uh, so this series takes a bit, uh, a while to actually come around. So it's not until 1972 that they actually get to play it. Uh, and in September, you have a team of uh, 32 of Canada's best hockey players all pulled from the NHL uh, to face against the Soviets' best players. Uh, and the, it turns out to be this eight game series that they predict is going to be a total win for Canada. Uh, all of the experts that they asked about it actually predicted that all eight games would be Canadian victories. And that's not the case at all. Uh, it ends up being actually a very close series um, and Canada only wins by one goal. It's a 31 wow. goals for the Soviet Union and 32 for Canada at the end of it. So it's very tight uh, and it really comes down to luck that Canada wins more than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. That's super fascinating. I can definitely say I didn't know kind of all that hockey history. Um, so then you said that the Summit Series was kind of this expression of nationalism. Could you go into that a little bit more? Um, so how exactly was that nationalism expressed um, during the tournament? You said it was a tournament? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what, what I kind of mean by that, I'm very happy to go into this, uh, is what's important to consider when we're talking about Canadian nationalism in particular. Uh, is that Canadian nationalism is something that is so purposely constructed uh, that our idea of what our country is is something that we have uh, we have almost manually made. Uh, and hockey is something that plays so tightly into that uh, as something that we really kind of turn towards as this expression of Canada. And Canada is also a country that we kind of, our, our national identity comes from juxtaposition, from what we are not, right? And so when we're looking at Canada playing the Summit Series, a lot of it um, comes to, you know, well, we are not Russia. We are not communist. And so if we're better at hockey, if our hockey is better than theirs, then our society, which is so in contrast to theirs, is also better. Um, and it's kind of proving that this identity that we have purposely taken and making for ourselves, or made, sorry, would probably be the better word to use there. Um, so this identity that we have made for ourselves is one that uh, is affirmed. We're reaffirming uh, that Canada is the greatest nation at this and uh, kind of by, uh, by extension, we're the greatest nation in general, right? That's really fascinating. So, I mean, I think the connection that you're you're making there may be obvious to some people. I mean, I think when we're looking, I mean, we've just come out of the Olympics, um, you know, with all the nationalism that goes on there. It's very obvious that there would be nationalism going on in a big sporting competition like this. But do you, did you find that it was a little bit more nuanced than just waving a flag and saying, you know, go Canada? Oh, certainly. Um, because we also need to think about 1972 uh, and French separatism, uh, right? So Quebec at this point in time is really kind of, if French separatism is really happening at this point in time. Uh, so what we're looking at, right, that Quebec has just come out of the October crisis as well, where the, the entire province was shut down. And so we're at this point of really complicated relationships between uh, Anglo and Franco-Canadians. Franco and we have this sporting tournament, which includes prominently both French and Anglo-Canadians, both playing towards kind of proving that Canadian nationalism, Canadian way of life, and Canadian masculinity in particular uh, is superior to the Russian version of it. And so you have this kind of rare moment of unity that's happening uh, against the backdrop of second wave feminism, against the backdrop of the civil rights movement, and against French separatism uh, to kind of all prove that Canada 
as it presents itself in the Cold War is a bigger issue and that Canada has to present this united front. Um, and so it is pretty nuanced, actually. You see a lot of different perspectives. The other thing that's important happening in 1972 uh, is there's about to be an election. And you see uh, Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, uh, putting in his congratulations to the team, mentioning uh, that it's showing the success of the Liberal Party or Liberal Canada and how he should continue being prime minister and everything like that. So it's very interesting to see how quickly politics uh, fall into this, actually. And it's actually Esposito. Uh, who's a player in the Summit Series, he's a, a co-captain, uh, who says that this tournament very quickly descends into politics. And it's not something that the players wanted, but it's something that they, they became aware of very quickly and they knew how important this was going to be to the greater national significance. Absolutely. So I think we just touched on a whole lot of really good things there. Um, so you mentioned masculinity, French separatism, um, kind of the politics behind everything going on here. I mean, clearly it wasn't just a hockey game. Um, so I definitely want to get into uh, your discussion of masculinity in just a moment, but maybe let's take a step back and talk a little bit more about French separatism. So what exactly was going on in Canada around this time? What, what is this desire for French separatism? Um, so in the 1960s, leading into the 1970s, uh, a lot of French Canadians had realized that uh, there was a lot of preferential treatment for Anglo-Canadians in Canada as a nation that is primarily comprised of people who speak English. And a lot of that is going you know, way back to the Battle of the Plains of Abraham, where you have the English taking colonial control of Canada and producing a government that favors English Canadians uh, and favors kind of these, um, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, like the WASP Canadians, essentially. And so these French Canadians, who are primarily French Catholic as well, uh, feel that they don't have representation in government. They feel that the country doesn't really fit who they feel they are and who they feel their history or what they feel their history is to be either. And so in the um, 60s, there becomes this uh, kind of French determinism movement, this idea of uh, separating from Canada and, and defining themselves as separate from the greater Canadian uh, idea of what our nation is. Um, and so you have what happens in the 1970s, uh, comes this October crisis where the FLQ, which is an extremist group, uh, you know, kidnaps political figures uh, and actually kills one of them. Um, and so you see this kind of continually uh, becoming uh, more violent and more aggressive kind of in the face of uh, continued ignorance from the government. They continue kind of just pushing it aside. So going into the 1972 election, they realized that French separatism is going to be something that they have to address at a much greater level. And they start doing that through something that all Canadians are kind of interacting with, French or Anglo, which is hockey. Um, we don't quite realize in 2021 how much hockey uh, was used as, as something to just everyone talked about. Everybody watched hockey. Um, you know, I think we've kind of stepped away from that now that, you know, that you can you know, reliably talk to someone and, and th they won't know anything about hockey. Uh, in 1972, that was not the case. Everybody had a team and everybody followed hockey. Um, and I think we've kind of, we, we kind of don't understand quite how much something like hockey could be used to unify um, or to kind of gloss over these great divisions that are happening in the country. Absolutely. That's really fascinating. I think that's so interesting to see kind of the summit series happening, um, you know, between Canada and between the USSR, but then there's all this kind of nuanced, um, you know, political issues going on in Canada itself. Now, was this 
French separatism and these issues in Canada kind of the main focus of your research or was your was your main focus elsewhere? Oh, not at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, this was kind of a backdrop to understanding the society that produced the players for Team Canada for the Summit Series. Um, but really the focus of my cognate was on expressions of masculinity and violence. Um, and so it was really more focusing on how uh, at its bare bones, the ideal hockey player is the ideal Canadian. Um, and so dissecting what does that mean for our national identity? And what does that mean for men in Canada and how they're expected to perform their masculinity as this very heteronormative and, and kind of, you know, this gritty, tough, uh, masculine hockey player. Um, and so really the, the Summit Series served more than anything as a case study, as a way to really kind of get into the details of um, how we constructed a Canadian masculine identity around our concepts of uh, athleticism and particularly athleticism in hockey. That's really fascinating. I think that is definitely not something that people immediately jump to when you're thinking of hockey. Um, so how how did this come up? How did this become part of your research? I mean, were you always going into your research knowing you wanted to talk about masculinity in the Summit Series? Or has this kind of evolved the more um, you looked at your sources and the more research you did? Uh, well, I started my master's not planning on talking about hockey at all. Uh, so I have always had an interest in uh, masculinity and how masculinity uh, impacts the way that gender interacts and how we think of ourselves and our bodies and things like that. Um, and my background actually comes from military history. Uh, and so when I came to Western, I was planning on doing military history and then kind of got sidetracked by this project that ended up really capturing my interest and being something that wouldn't leave me alone. Uh, it was through a course that we actually took together, uh, Gender Canada, that I fell into this topic of masculine nationalism and uh, the way that we express it using hockey. And it was my supervisor, uh, Dr. Monda Halpern, who really kind of pushed me to turn this into a cognate uh, and to do it specifically focusing on the Summit Series. Uh, so it was not something I intended to study <laughs> whatsoever, uh, but my background on military masculinity came in really handy here because really when you break it down, athletes are soldiers. Uh, and I know that seems maybe like a little bit of an extreme statement to make, um, but you can kind of see these same ideas of fraternalism, of this, your body is sacrificial for victory, and that victory is the most important thing that you'll achieve. And when you add the weight of nation to that victory, whether that is through war or through international sport, uh, you see men behaving in ways that are very reminiscent of, uh, of, of wartime, right? And so these players in the summit series though they are not actively soldiers they are part of a war uh the cold war quite literally and so they're taking on these characteristics of soldiers and they're behaving in the same way uh, with kind of this very aggressive very violent um and at the end of the day very masculine way of performing uh and so we we see these connections between um kind of military masculinity and and the masculinity that's being used in the summit series as well mm -hmm. Can you just um, kind of expand on military masculinity a little bit more? It's not a term that I've, I've heard used before. So what is military masculinity? Is it this, this kind of aggression that you're talking about, this like hyperaggression, I guess, if you will, or, or is, it, is it more than that? Um, that's certainly part of it. And really, you may, maybe haven't heard this term because it's not really an official term. It's one that I have <laughs> tended to use to kind of explain what I'm talking about. And what I'm going to have to get into here a little bit is actually the history of emotion. 
um, because I do have a bit of a background in the history of emotion. It's something I find very fascinating. Um, and within the history of emotion, uh, there's a historian, Barbara Rosenwein, who proposes the idea of there being an emotional community. So it's the people that surround you kind of create ways that you can express emotion. And this emotional community can be, um, you know, the group of people that you study with at school, or it can be your comrades in arms when you're talking about the military, or it can be your hockey team, right? And so when we're looking at the idea of an emotional community within a military setting, what does that mean? How are these men interacting? How are these men behaving? How are they expected to behave? Uh, and so that's where you find ideas of um, very staunch heterosexuality, um, but at the same time, this kind of more open homosocial relations as well, because you have to be very close to the person that you're working with. Because if you're expected to, uh, you know, literally kill, uh, you know, fight and kill next to them, you have to be able to trust them at a level that we're not used to. Um, and you also have to be willing to kill and die for the person standing next to you. So it creates this environment where these men are incredibly close, um, but there's also very strict rules to how they perform their masculinity because it is a very hyper-masculine environment. Uh, and you'll find the same thing within sport where men are expected to kind of portray this, this very manly, very you know, staunch um, masculine behavior where you, know, you can't do anything that's considered feminine. So um, you know, excess of emotion uh, is appropriate, but only in certain behaviors. Uh, so it's only appropriate in excess of aggression, right? Tears are only allowed if you've just lost the big game. Um, you know, that there's, there's limits to how close you can be to your teammates before you start getting accusations of homosexuality. Um, and so there's very kind of strict rules to how you behave. And these are all things that you find will overlap between boarding relationships and uh, military relationships as well. And it always comes back to our ideas of how men should behave as men. That makes a ton of sense. I think there is a lot of really interesting things there. I, I'm sure not many people know that there is kind of a whole history of emotion, um, that that is a field that is something that people study. Um, so that idea of military masculinity is really fascinating. So then you said that these hockey players, particularly, I mean, I'm, I'm going to talk about the Canadian hockey players, because I think that really is more your focus. Yes. Um, you said that they were kind of seen as akin to soldiers um, through this military masculinity. Were they kind of akin to soldiers in any other ways or just kind of in, in that masculine military sense? Well, I mean, if we want to go for the really kind of obvious ones, they're quite literally wearing a uniform. <laughs> and there are uniforms. What's fascinating about the Summit Series too, we look at modern hockey uniforms, they always have the names on the back, right? Uh, on the on the cross the top of their shoulders uh in the case of the summit series every single player doesn't have their last name they're branded with the word canada and i always thought that was very interesting and maybe i'm reading too much into it uh but to me that's almost reducing them to their national identity uh and the summit series players uh on the russian side as well don't even have a name they're just numbers uh, which i can tell you from watching the games is so confusing <laughs> um just trying to figure out who is who on these 1970s broadcasts where sometimes they're cutting out and i have no idea who scored the goal uh can be very difficult um but i mean when we're looking kind of towards these men are being given the weight of the nation of national victory um and they're being given this weight of needing to prove how excellent canada is and you see a lot of kind of the hopes and dreams of the nation being placed on these men 
Uh, and in fact, I have a, a very interesting newspaper too. When they, so the, the first game of the series, they actually lose uh, quite dramatically. The score ends up being, uh, I believe it's uh, seven for the Soviet Union and four for Canada. So quite a dramatic loss. Um, and there's this uh, article. So it's from Ted Blackman uh, and he's a sports editor for the Montreal Gazette. Uh, and he says, and I'm going to quote this word for word because I think it's very funny. Um, and he goes, so quote, when our national institution crumbles with one Bolshevik body check, what then can preserve the adjacent out of buildings of our culture? Nothing. Our national inferiority complex defended only by our hockey may now become terminal neurosis. Uh, so <laughs> clearly Ted Blackman had thoughts about Canada losing this first game. <laughs> because uh, he felt that, um, and justifiably, honestly, he felt that this this total disgrace of a loss, which was 7-3, actually, I stand corrected, um, was one that would really kind of uh, make Canada insecure in our national identity. Because if our national identity, as I mentioned earlier, is so tied to hockey and to these major victories in hockey, and we've kind of, you know, hinged our identity on the idea that we can't be beaten. And the only reason we haven't been beaten is because we haven't been played. Um, to lose that dramatically in the first game is going to really call into question everything that Canadians have based their identity around. And that's the same thing when you look at war, because you're asking me about how military masculinity factors into this and how are they akin to soldiers. Well, when you have soldiers dramatically losing these kind of major and important battles, well, you become very unsure of where you stand as a nation, right? And if your nation can be successful yeah. within war. So it's the same thing. Can our nation be successful within sport and by this greater extension within the Cold War? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's such a great point that you're making there is, I mean, you have to remember all of this is happening in the context of the Cold War. I mean, there were uh, multiple nations trying to prove that their way of life, their way of living was better than that of the USSR. And that's just what was happening during this period. So it makes tons of sense. Exactly. And yeah. when you come down to it, if Canada's pride is always hinged on Canadian hockey players being successful at playing hockey, but then if the Soviet society is producing better hockey players, well, then is their society actually inferior to ours? Because we rely so much on measuring our success through hockey, right? So our success now as a nation is questioned. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I really wanna ask, were there any surprising outcomes from this research? I mean, I'm sure you went in with a hypothesis um, and an assumption of what you would find, but was there anything that you really weren't expecting? I wasn't expecting Canada to be as bad at hockey as they were. <laughs> that might be a very mean answer. Um, watching these games, I think I went into it the expectation of having heard kind of the legacy of the summit series and the memory that we have of the summit series, which is this, we've kind of softened the edges of this series a little bit by the Canadian victory because Canada does win the series at the very end um, with mm -hmm. this very dramatic, you know, show-stopping goal. Uh, Paul Henderson, who's a native of Concord in Ontario and really fulfilling this great Canadian narrative is born on the ice of one of the Great Lakes, Lake Huron, because his mom doesn't make it to the hospital in time. And he goes on and, you know, they're tied 5-5 and 34 seconds in like before the end of the game Paul Henderson scores right and so you have this this really joyous dramatic victory this very close game and it to me was always about that it was always about the Henderson goal it was always about Canada proved their superiority um and then watching this series I realized no they're getting outplayed a lot uh you know the Russians are playing cleaner they're playing you know they're playing more cohesively as a team um 
and I was surprised almost how uh, goony the behavior of the Canadians was. Um, I should probably define goon really quick. That's like a, a hockey term. Um, so that's a um, an enforcer. So it's a player who's meant to specifically play very aggressively to try and kind of protect their star players. Um, but really when it came down to it, the star players of the Summit Series, like uh, Phil Esposito is still playing the same way, very aggressively um, and very violently. And I think that surprised me more because I hadn't heard as much about how close the series actually was because I think our national memory of it has become so focused on this great moment of victory um, that we forget mm -hmm. that no the Russians were actually very good and in fact they were probably better than us uh, you know <laughs> and it really yeah. came down to kind of luck in the case of Canada in some cases and I'm not saying that the players weren't good they were but um, you know the the star the captain for the Soviet team uh, Karlamov they his ankle gets broken. Uh, it gets slashed by a Canadian player and broken on the ice. And so, well, if he was, if he was there for game seven, would the outcome have been the same in the tournament? Right. So there's all these questions that come back to, well, no, this was actually an incredibly close series, uh, but Canadians like to just remember that we won because that's the only thing that matters. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, now this question may be a little bit outside the scope of your research, but why do you think this is the legacy of the series? Why is it this kind of monumentous, almost fantastical moment in, in Canada's history? Because I think where Canada stood as a society in 1972, if we had have admitted that the Soviet system got that close to beating us at what we consider ourselves to be the best at, what we consider ourselves good to be at, they'd be defeating our society. And Canadian society at that point in time was already so fractured and so divided that if we had have admitted that to ourselves, I think a lot of what we consider our national identity to be and our cohesive national identity would have fallen apart. Um, it would have basically unraveled what Canada is at its seams. And I think that that would have been very dangerous. Um, and if Canada had have lost in this series, I think there would have been a huge reckoning of reconsidering what Canada means and what Canada stands for because so much of it in the 20th century is tied to hockey. Um, yeah. And so I think that that's why we haven't really addressed it. I also think when it comes down to it, sports are always about the narrative. They always are. They're about the story, right? And mm -hmm. it's it's a better story if Canada just went in there and won. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we don't expect our country to be an underdog and all of a sudden they were one. And that makes it a very difficult story to comprehend when we've been so reliant on this nation being good at hockey, essentially. It really all comes yeah. back to the fact that our national identity is being good at hockey. Yeah, yeah. I think it would have been very underwhelming if Canada hadn't won. I think it would have been kind of a crisis of identity for many exactly. people. Yeah. Well, clearly for <laughs> yeah. Ted, uh, Ted Blackwall it was. Ted Blackman, sorry. Yeah. Clearly for Ted Blackman yeah. it was. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and unfortunately, we are just about out of time now. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the show, Caitlin. We really appreciate uh, you coming on and taking your time to talk with us. Um, now, if anyone wants to learn more about your research, do you have a website, uh, an email, or any social media that you'd like to share where they could reach out for maybe some more information? Well, yeah, as you certainly know, I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, so <laughs> please feel free to follow me at cartkate, that's C-A-R-T-K-A-I-T. Um, I don't always post about my research on there, but I certainly do sometimes. Uh, even got retweeted by some major hockey journalists recently, which was very <laughs> interesting. <laughs> um, uh, I also have an email if you want to contact me. So you can contact me at kcart, uh, C-A-R-T-E, 46 at uwo.ca. I'm happy to talk about this. 
Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Rosemary, and today we've been speaking with Caitlin Carter. This episode was produced by Reese. And if you'd like to get involved with the show or get in contact with us, please feel free to email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night, everyone.